Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on a bunch of writers sitting around, drinking and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Today's hosts are John Schmidt and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 66, Travels with Pain with Liz Hamill. Welcome, Liz. Thank you. It's great to be here. So glad you've joined us because travel writing is something that we have written absolutely nothing about. We've not talked about it. We've not done it. Uh, the only thing I used to do is when I got sent away and abroad for work, I would write long stories and John would say, you should write travel books. And you know somebody who writes travel books. This is great. Even how better. Did, somebody how did you get started? <laughs> oh, well, I got started. Um, by deciding that I wanted to do some form of writing other than technical writing, and I wanted to do it professionally. And so I tried a whole bunch of different kinds of freelance writing, and what ended up appealing to me quite a lot was travel writing, and I got gigs doing it, which was even better. How did you look for them? I mean... Oh. How, how did, if, you, if somebody out there is like, I want to do that, that sounds awesome... Where would, what, would, what was your path? How do you advise it? Well, the first thing I did was actually I read up about how to look for freelance writing gigs of all, of all kinds. I uh, read books on the subject. I read blogs on the subject, such as they were back in the you know, early dark ages when I started my travel writing business. But um, yeah, I, I, t uh, you know, I, I went to classes, uh, local community colleges. I went to seminars. And I really, I tried to, I, I educated myself on how to find um, find work as a as a travel writer and as uh, also as a food and wine writer because those are part of travel writing. Honestly. I highly respect anything that gives me an excuse to about eat and write about it. <laughs> oh yes, that's one of the best things. That's one of the best parts about being a travel writer is that it includes all of the night lovely food. <laughs> Um, but yeah, what I started with was smaller magazines. There was a little magazine over in the uh, San Mateo coast in California that uh, turned out to pay their writers and to accept freelance submissions. And, I, and they were one of the first people to publish me. And I probably published easily a couple of dozen articles with them over the years, many about traveling. So I started small and then worked my way up to larger publications like, uh, you know, Glossy Magazines, the San Francisco Chronicle, um, corporate blogs uh, became a pretty cool place to write that would pay. Basically, yeah, if, if they'd pay me, I'd probably write for them. We've, we've talked about technical writing before, and there's... There seems to be two fences. There's folks like Dave Levine, who's an author, who said it kind of sucked his creativity out. And then there seem to be folks like you that it allows you just more outlets for creativity. Um, it's technical writing is probably the easiest way to make money while being a writer. And I do understand the people who feel like it sucks their creativity out, but I, that's not me. I don't agree with that. 
And some of the work that I got, uh, including writing guidebooks, uh, has some things in common with technical writing, and I was actually able to port some of my technical writing skills over into guidebook writing. Um, oh, and good, fun little anecdote is uh, in terms of looking for work, I got my first guidebook writing gig by cold answering an ad on Craigslist. Oh, that's real. fantastic. So, <laughs> I so some, of those, some of those are worth answering then. <laughs> yes, you, most of them aren't. I'd say, you know, 98 out of 100 of them are crap, but um, those two... <laughs> So, uh, what was your first technical writing gig in general? Generally? My first technical writing gig? Or my I'm sorry, your first travel writing gig. I apologize. Uh, my first travel writing uh, piece that I ever published was an essay about the time that I got a cockroach stuck in my ear canal on my first honeymoon. <laughs> I got that published in an anthology of essays. Um, out of a uh, small press uh, that does travel anthologies. Um, I believe that the name of the uh, series or the, the moniker of the series is Sand in My Bra. It was a, a bunch of stories by women uh, travel writers that were funny stories. And I love that you also went all that and started exploring and found a niche for it. You have a niche that speaks to me impressively uh, because you are travelswithpain.wordpress.com. There is some on disability. We don't have enough on traveling with a disability to start with, and let alone with a lot of the hidden disabilities that we talk with, like people with fibromyalgia and lupus and cancer, any kind of chronic pain which makes for unreliable ability. You know, I love that somebody talked about spoons. How many spoons do you have? Tell mm -hmm. us about how you've started to bring that into your writing to describe to people that they can still get out, that they can still go do things. That actually started um, when I got the first gig to write a straight up travel guide, because by the time I started traveling to write my first California guidebook, I was sick. Um, and it, it was getting steadily worse. And I realized partway through doing all of the travel for that, that I really needed different stuff when I was traveling uh, than I had when I was healthy. So I started, you know, looking into it and, you know, Googling traveling with chronic pain, traveling with hidden disabilities, and I found almost nothing. So, uh, over a couple of years, I sort of realized that, you know, this is something no one's writing about. Maybe I should write about it. And found my way onto some LinkedIn traveling with disability groups. And they were mostly um, what is more, what most people think of as traditional disabilities, which means wheelchair users. And so I sort of cautiously tiptoed in my way into these groups. And um, mentioned what I was thinking about writing, um, you know, really feeling like an imposter because I didn't use a wheelchair except occasionally at the airport, and I felt bad about even doing that. And to my surprise, all these people, I, I got rushed with wheelchair-using travelers saying, finally, someone who can write about hidden disability traveling, where have you been all our lives? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, 
I've got to say, it. I found it differently traveling. I noticed that you traveled abroad and wrote about some of that too. Have you noticed that it's easier to get accommodation not in America versus in America? I think it's different. I think that the accommodations uh, country over country can be very variable. I think that the United States does better on some things in some parts because we're a younger country. We don't have a lot of old architecture that has to be dealt with. Uh, we don't have a lot of old cobblestone streets that have to be navigated. Um, you know, there aren't, uh, especially on the West Coast, you know, you're not talking about eight floor walk-ups most of the time. Yeah. On the other hand, the attitudes and certain other um, issues are easier abroad. Um, a lot of museums in other countries seem a lot more interested in accommodating folks with disabilities than American museums do, and I'm not sure why that is, but it is. Uh, it also, yeah, it varies widely country over country. Um, I think every, every, uh, every country is still struggling with this topic as best they can, but it is kind of cool to see Disabled travel becoming a more accepted, uh, accepted idea and, uh, at national levels of all you know, places like Ecuador, which you wouldn't necessarily think of as a hotbed of disabled travel, is a hotbed of disabled travel. There are whole resorts geared toward wheelchair users and slow walkers. There are uh, charter fishing boats uh, where anyone, people of all sorts of ability levels can go out and catch themselves an enormous fish. <laughs> I think it's that's really something. Yeah, it is beautiful. And I get what you mean about how, like, we were in Venice. Venice is super hard, I got to say, for people with walking challenges because of that, the mm -hmm. cobblestone, the steps everywhere, et cetera. But all of the airports were... And when I have my mom in a wheelchair, we're just there was somebody there. They mm -hmm. put it, they marked her, they put it in there. Whereas America, it's like, well, you can borrow that. It's kind of self-service, but they don't really want to take you to the bathroom or run you through the snack bar. So I loved that you were advising people to have snacks and and be and drink a little bit less, have a little bit of snack more. It's <laughs> oh, it's yeah. important things to think about, and and I love how you brought all of these things that are worth thinking about that says, hey, you can do this, you just need to think about it a little bit. I sometimes equate it to being like a young parent traveling with toddlers. I could You're, see that. I see my, you know, my, my pain and my disability, my periodic mobility issues due to the pain are a little bit like a recalcitrant toddler. And you know, it's sometimes, sometimes they're great, sometimes they sleep the whole time. Sometimes they're not great. Sometimes they scream the whole time. <laughs> and you have to be ready for either. And that's the way it is with a lot of hidden disabilities, too. When you're traveling, it's not necessarily predictable whether, you know, okay, even when you're not traveling, it's not predictable if you're going to have a good day or a bad day. It's true. So, and, and I yeah, think you got, just got to be prepared. <laughs> yeah, and, and I love that you have that. How do you be prepared? How do you be the Boy Scout of the hidden disabilities? or the open disabilities and still see mm -hmm. the world. So I thought that was really amazing. I had some really great encouraging people. There was a gentleman named Scott Rains uh, who passed away a few years ago, but he, he still ha he had a blog called the Rolling Rains Report. Uh, and he was a man who was uh, 
became an incomplete quadriplegic when he was about 15 years old and became one of the biggest advocates for traveling with disabilities worldwide, as in, you know, countries, uh, you know, national tourist boards would fly him to their countries so he could talk to them about how to use universal design to make their tourist attractions more accessible to to travelers of all abilities. Fantastic. How exciting. Um, Has anybody volunteered to fly you somewhere yet so that you can (laughs) write about their beautiful city? (laughs) Not in a goodly long while, no. Although there was that one time when I was paid... Did get this all expenses paid trip to the Sonoma Valley to taste wine and eat great food all weekend. <laughs> oh, very nice. Is is that one of the books we can buy? You have out there the is that a moon book? The <laughs> oh, sadly no. That was a magazine piece. <laughs> now, when we were inviting you to do this, you were talking about how some of your books ran out of print and we'd have a hard time getting them now. Tell me about your publishing challenges. I mean, is there Small print, large print, what are the options open? How does that work? Give us us the story. Oh, goodness. Publishing... Publishing is a, it's a really interesting time to be in travel writing right now. And interesting time is not always a good thing, as we all know. Um, When I was doing the Moon moon Handbook series, which at this point, um, all of my Moon books are pretty much either out of print or should be out of print because they're more than a decade old. And your average print travel guidebook is going to be out of date by the time it's actually published. Um, Nowadays, what people like me are are much more into is mixed media, multimedia, online delivery. Um, I worked for a little while as a contractor with a young man who was doing a disabled travel app. Uh, That's something that happens. Um, You know, you've got uh, people who are doing Instagram all of, um, you know, online magazines, um, corporate blogs, tourism, you know, area tourism blogs, those are viable options for publication now. There are still magazines and books, uh, and I wouldn't discourage anyone from trying to do that, but they are the harder path nowadays. Right. So more of a living. Should should somebody get better at, uh, you know, the the taking pictures? Do you do pictures of yourself? Or? Oh, yeah. I did a lot of my own pictures for the Moon Handbooks. Um, and that's actually from way back. Well, that's even not even the internet age. Um, you know, as budgets have gotten tighter and tighter for um, starting mid-20th century, travel writers need to be able to take their own pictures. And happily, you know, that's actually easier and cheaper than it used to be. Because uh, most phones will take uh, print quality pictures and they'll certainly take online display quality pictures. But yeah, learning a little bit about photography is your friend. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so they've got a little bit of writing, they have where to look, they have a little bit of photography. Yep. What else might you give a prospective person who wanted to write about food or travel or or these areas? Should they? I would say... um, Well, okay, two things. One, um, to be successful, you do need to find a niche. And actually, traveling with pain 
turned out to be a pretty good niche. I, I wrote about different flavors of different, you know, different kinds of disabilities. Um, I wrote about uh, traveling with food allergies for a um, food magazine for a while. Um, but yeah, you got to find an angle uh, or a niche, something that's not what everybody in the world is doing. Um, you also, you, and you need to think about that whether you're publishing yourself on your own blog your, or your own Twitter account or whether you're working for other people getting freelance gigs because um, as I remember reading an article about the subject of travel writing and how to sell travel stories uh, that Spain is not the subject of a travel story that you're ever going to sell. <laughs> An editor, this guy who is an editor was saying he, you know, he gets, it's a dime a dozen. He gets a dozen, dozen queries a, a day practically asking if, you know, saying, I'm going to Greece. I'm going to Spain. Can I write for you? He says he doesn't want an article about Spain. He wants an article about Harley riding lesbians, mountain biking through the northern part of Spain with their dogs. That's Fantastic. a story. Yeah. I, I can't do that. But it's it's true that the reign of writing about traveling with pain was never then in Spain. Uh, uh, oh, John. But that does, that does lead me to the question, um, how, and it's an odd question, how hard is it, it to be a travel writer? It's, I, I, I have a different view because... When I travel, I try to immerse myself in the moment, but when I write, I try to be removed. So trying to write about travel means I'm not actually getting to enjoy the travel because I have to be mentally writing. Is that more correct? Is, is it a fun thing or a hard thing for you? Um, it's both, but it is a hard thing. I will tell you, travel writing is the hardest I've ever worked for the smallest amount of money, and I have worked in food service <laughs> and retail. Wow. That is a respectable comparison. <laughs> Part of the problem you get is that, you know, if I had 10 bucks for every person who went, wow, you're a travel writer, I want to be a travel writer, I could take myself on a really nice trip. I bet. Because, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a supply and demand thing. Everyone wants to be a travel writer. Um, there, are, and there aren't that many, you know, places, you know, there, aren't, there just isn't that much demand for it. I mean, there is demand for it, but compared to the number of people who think it would be cool, no. Also, yeah, actually, John, you really touched on something just now, which is that travel writing is not being paid to go on vacation. Tell me more. Uh, no. It, um, you get a few lucky people who are able to, you know, backpack around the Andes and then write about it. Um, even they are working harder than it sounds like they're working, but your average travel writer is spending 10% of their time traveling and 90% of their time writing and marketing and doing uh, collections and revising things that editors want and doing some more marketing. Um, it's not, yeah, you are not going to be sipping umbrella drinks there's also the fact that even when you are traveling, and John, this also speaks to what you just said, you have to be thinking about what you're 
going to be writing about when you're traveling. I was constantly taking notes. I could never be at one attraction for longer than an hour because I had to hit as many things as humanly possible in one day. When you're doing that with chronic pain, it's even harder. Oh, God. <laughs> um, then you've got, your, when you're eating, you never stay in the same hotel room more than one night in a row because you have to hit as many hotels, motels, B&Bs, campgrounds as possible so that you can write about them. Uh, when you're eating, you're eating at a different restaurant, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, and yeah, I got to a point when I was writing for the guidebooks where I was being led to yet another white tablecloth California cuisine restaurant where I was going to be served a bunch of artfully designed food piled up on the center of a square white plate. Mm. I very nearly grabbed the lapels of the B&B owner and screamed, I just want a burrito. Is that so wrong? <laughs> I can see that. Um, it's, yeah, you don't get to do what you want to do all the time when you're a travel writer. You get to do what your audience wants to read about because when it comes right down to it, like with all writing, and I know you, you guys know this as the, as the hosts of Writers Drinking Coffee, writing is about your audience. This is very much so, and figuring out who your audience is is huge. Like, it, we, we always say, like, who are you writing? I, people have sent me this and saying, oh, what do you think of it? Who are you writing it for? I have an example of, I have a friend that's, honestly, she's having challenges writing lesson plans. Sorry, Netta. Of, of finding out what the teacher wants. I'm like, have you asked the teacher directly, who is your audience? Because... You have mixed first and third person. Are they a, the teacher? Are they the board? Are they? You write different things for different people. And you're absolutely right of saying you might be writing for people that are traveling that have these challenges, that have extreme allergies or uh, their own chronic pain or relatives that are, have, you know, dis physical disabilities. Even mental disabilities, I would love to see writing for autism done out there. So There is some. Um, I've got a friend whose name is Marguerite Sturm Francis, whose son is autistic, who writes about travel with, aut with a ch an autistic child. That so is that's out there. That's so cool. Because she's the traveling mom, right? Yeah. Uh, yes. She's yeah. the traveling mom. Uh, and I will get. I will have to look up the link to her site. To oh no no, that. I've I've heard of her. I know her. So when you oh, said that's... autistic, I'm like, wait, because naturally after Elizabeth Moon's The Speed of Dark, I'm like, oh, this is amazing. More people should write about autism. Yeah, she and I uh, hooked up through the Traveling with Disabilities uh, community. Um, I think we were both at the same uh, Society for Accessible Travel and Hospitality uh, event. Uh, and met up, and she's a really nice lady. Uh, and she has done a lot of work around traveling with disabilities. She actually uh, just, not this, not with this last set of California wildfires, but last years, she had to uh, take an unplanned trip to evacuate her home with an autistic, an adult autistic child. And she actually wrote up a 
really good list, uh, a preparedness list for that exact situation. I think that's fantastic. I mean, even if it's not full autism, even if it's just maybe on the spectrum with some Asperger's, there's just things that maybe parents can do to succeed more, to make family vacations fun. Absolutely. One of the things that I found really, um, you know, enlightening about the list is, you know, 90% of it applied to me. (laughs) Well, that's fair. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was a lot of, you don't necessarily think about it, but really good tips that work for everybody that are just a little bit more important if you're dealing with somebody who has autism. And you can extrapolate that to to somebody who has chronic pain. Like for me, um, one of the things that I think about a lot, and I just screwed up just a couple months ago, was remembering to pack all my prescriptions whenever I leave the house. Oh, yes. Although I, I found... Because, like I said, I worked used to send me abroad more often than they do now. And when they'd sent me abroad, I can go to, I landed in Frankfurt. They have an apothecary right there in the, in the, um, Flug, sorry, I'm suddenly thinking in German. What's the word for Flughafen? Like, <laughs> Airport. Airport. <laughs> and you could just walk in there and say, I am so sorry. I'm here for a week and I've forgotten my pills. And the nice man will ask you what you're on. And if it's not a controlled substance, they magically just give it to you. It was so amazing. Oh, I know. I, one of the most you know, amazing things for me of the incident when I got the cockroach stuck in my ear, I was in uh, Tahiti, which is a protectorate of France. And I did actually have to go to the local clinic on the island of Morea after hours at the, that night to get the cockroach removed from my ear. Did you know that in France, the French protectorates, they'll do emergency work without even asking you your name? Oh, civilization. I know. And yeah, it's just, yeah. There, although you do also have to be careful when traveling abroad if you take prescription medication because laws vary. And some drugs that we wouldn't think of in the United States as being potentially illegal, are, and not, I'm not even talking typical controlled substances, opioids. I'm talking about um, antidepressants and muscle relaxers are not legal in other countries. That is and exceptionally that is something good I've read- for people to know. <laughs> yes, um, both for yourself, if you've got elderly parents traveling with you, if you have a if you are traveling with some, if you were traveling as a caretaker for someone with a disability, making sure that you know your med list and know how it's going to interact with the laws of wherever you're going is always a good idea. And I did, I had, I believe I have written about that. So that makes, see, there you go. There's a piece of advice that some folks didn't have. Like mine was, I was a younger girl. I had thyroid meds and birth control in Germany. Apparently they will just give them to you over the counter. It was magic. Wow. Right? (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool. Yeah, but you can't, but I love that you're pointing out the things you can't take for granted that you then Mm -hmm. sort of write and share with others like, hey, it's really good to know and think about. And it enables a lot of people. Not only do you have the fun of, well, I, I, for instance, would love to spend a different night in every place, but it's that you have the fun of it and you're helping people at the same time. Your writing is giving people 
a feeling that I can go do that, that we are not trapped in our life, that we can have the courage to go do things. And that's really what I wanted to do with the blog and the book for Traveling with Pain was to help people understand that, yeah, actually, you know, because when I was diagnosed, I was devastated. Um, I had been a, you know, I've been an athlete. I've been a super healthy person. And then suddenly I wasn't. And the idea that I wouldn't get to travel anymore was, you know, I, I thought that might be my reality. And discovering that it wasn't and discovering that there were things I could write about, I could use the skill I had to help other people realize that, no, actually, you can do these things. Um, yeah, it takes more work. It takes more effort. You do have to pre-plan more. You maybe have to be a little more flexible, but you still can. Yeah. And yeah, yeah and I think should, that's I, I want I want everyone to travel. It's fun. It is. John did a, a a tour over in Europe where he danced in all the great dance halls of Europe. And when he told me about oh. this trip, I'm like, first of all, you should write it up somewhere, just because it's beautiful. And secondly, it made me want to do that, hearing about it and the way to get people to share your passion is to get them excited about it. And sometimes that's, that's reading. so cool, John. And actually that would make a great travel story because, and that is something that has a unique angle. I've never read anything about that. That's because it's a, a limited program and they, uh, some, some of the travel things you just have to get into. And for this, uh, Richard Powers of Stanford is the one who mm-hmm. put it together. And so there was always a waiting list to get on it, but to listen to an orchestra that is practiced specifically so that you can waltz to it in an 18th century Empress's waltzing pavilion on the river. Oh, but that's not what we're here about. <laughs> oh, but in a way it is because that's be- a beautiful travel story and it is yeah. something that's different and it's unique. Um, you know, I would read the hell out of that story. Yeah. And that's, that's the thing. It's like, who is your audience? The beautiful thing about writing for travel is there's so many people that maybe they don't have the funds right away to travel or they, you're trying to get a dream together to travel. To be able to read about it is you're giving them the world right there, right on, that, on their blog site. Absolutely. And, you know, we're all kind of stuck right now in the COVID universe. So... <laughs> So maybe We're all somebody kind of reading and dreaming. <laughs> exactly. And Liz, maybe somebody can like go out to your site and remember and have a little bit of hope and say, wow, I've been trapped and I'm not going to be trapped anymore. And I haven't traveled in years, but by God, 2021 or worst case, 2022, yeah. I can do it. And that's what your writing can bring to them. And that's your audience is anybody who might feel trapped that says, I can have the courage. I just need to prepare, and this is how I do it. Mm-hmm. I exactly, um, and yeah, I, in in a way, you know, having a little having a little run up time until we find a way to control COVID better. Yeah, that's time to plan. It's time to figure out what you think you can do, what you think you can't do. Well, and everybody who had a travel budget for this year and has blown it. Uh, this yep. is your chance. Go out to Liz's site. We'll put links out there <laughs> and, and, and dream about where you want to go. Read some travel stuff out there. And frankly, the more that you read travel stories, the more that publishers and people will say, hey, people are reading travel stories and they will pay writers to do it then. 
So it's they're tracking your clicks. <laughs> the circle of life, <laughs> <laughs> and it moves us all. Oh yes, uh, I will say actually, this is a good time with, with the COVID saving up money because one thing I have learned that is it's in some ways a hard and bitter reality, but it is a reality is that. Nothing helps travel with pain or without, like, rubbing money on the problems. That's yeah. a quote of the day. Oh, that is, that might go on a t-shirt. Well, <laughs> Liz, we're going to put links to your stories and all of the interesting things we mentioned on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter. We answer email. If, if people have questions for you about this, do you mind terribly... Uh, they write in, can we get you to answer for them? Absolutely. I'm always uh, willing, happy to answer. <laughs> Fantastic. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts and our guests. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre McGaffey Schween and our sound engineer and backup web spiders, David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Nothing a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with the Morning Person, both by world traveler Michael Langberg. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on ManyHatsMusic.com. Our podcast sponsor is Eternally Jackal Designs, enabling you all to buy cool WDC swag. And hey, thanks for listening. <laughs>